farming programme with our equipped steel stockholders with Umbrook Industrial Estate Grantham, supplying the region for over 40 years. What are the pros and cons of drilling a combinable crop through an undercrop? For us, the priority, obviously, is that we keep the balance in favour of the combinable crop. So the mulch needs to do its job, but basically stay down there in the bottom as low as possible to the ground. And have you ever thought of converting your Land Rover to electric power? The estimate is that it's it's about a four-year payback in terms of the investment return solely on savings of diesel. We'll hear all about it this week and talk free trees, agronomy, crop, livestock and grain markets and the weather for the week ahead. The Week in Agriculture. This is The Farming Programme with Steve Orchard. Hello, hope you're well, hope you've had a good week. The funeral of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, of course, takes place tomorrow. Some thoughts from Sean Sparling in a few minutes that I'm sure will reflect what the vast majority of us are feeling right now. First, though, the Woodland Trust is once again making hundreds of thousands of free trees available to schools and community groups as part of the UK's effort to reach net carbon zero by 2050. Steve Dewhurst from the Woodland Trust is here to tell us about the scheme. Steve, how did it go last year? Last year, we hit our record number of 1.3 million trees donated for no cost at all. And we're looking at uh, at beating that this time round. How many schools and community groups take part in this? Last year, I think it was about 9,000 schools and community groups applied. We're looking at sort of beating that as well this time. So it's really just a call out to anyone who might have a little bit of land available, publicly accessible land. That's sort of the big caveat that the land needs to be accessible to the general public, whether that's a school field, a public park, you know, a churchyard, uh, allotments, things like that. Okay, and what's the overall objective of getting all these trees planted? The reasons that we that we do it, there's many really. I mean, there's the environmental impact. Obviously, we need to slow down the effects of climate change and hopefully, eventually, start to reverse it. It's going to take a lot of work. We're just doing a little bit of that, but the more trees we get out there, the more it's going to benefit us in that respect. There's the psychological impact it has on people. People are happier when they're out in nature. The drought that we just had over summer was pretty hard going. Trees help combat that. Trees benefit absolutely everybody. All right. And if somebody's interested in taking this further, where do they go for more information? How do they apply? So they can apply now for trees to be delivered in spring next year. Uh, If they visit woodlandtrust.org.uk forward slash free trees, they'll find loads of information on there about what each of the packs contains Uh, There'll be information on on looking after the trees and there'll be a link to the the application form uh, at the bottom of that page as well. All right, Steve Dewhurst from the Woodland Trust. Good luck with the project. Thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you very much. Credit should go to Sainsbury's, Lloyds Bank, Ovo Energy, DFS, Jules, Bank of Scotland and Sophology, the Woodland Trust's lead partners who funded the trees. The website again for details is woodlandtrust.org.uk slash free trees. Now let us consider the pros and cons of drilling a combinable crop through a permanent or semi-permanent undercrop, living mulch. Mark Lee from Greenacres Farm has taken part in a trial along with the group Innovative Farmers and he joins us this morning. Mark, firstly, what is the mulch crop? The mulch is white clover. Um, It's all we've tried within the trial. We believe it gives us the best chance of this working. 
Um, but it's small-leaved white clover specifically. Does it have to be that? Can it be any crop that's no, not very tall? I mean, there are, other, there are other possible crops to use in this. The only things people really ever considered are legumes. But, for example, trefoil has been tried by some. Other larger clovers possibly tried also. For us, the priority, obviously, is that we keep the balance in favour of the combinable crop. So the mulch needs to do its job, but basically stay down there in the bottom as low as possible to the ground so the crop can get up and away from it. So we, we, we minimise the competition and we also uh, don't have any harvesting difficulties. So what are the benefits, Mark, of using this method? primary benefit is the reduction of cultivation. In the organic arable sector, you know, we're obviously aware of, of soil health and carbon, just like everybody else, and we're wanting to uh, improve our practice there. There is a need for us to explore ways to reduce cultivation, but set against that, of course, in organic systems where the weed control is generally mechanical, we are to some extent have been have felt certainly stuck in systems which require a lot of cultivation in order to give us the the, uh, the weed reduction and a hygienic start to each crop. So weed control is the priority, but to achieve that without cultivation is difficult. Also, bizarrely, in an organic system, I think it's clear also that we, whilst we cultivate to control the weeds, we also regenerate weeds by continually moving uh, weed seeds around within the profile. So if we can have more years in our system which are non-inversion years, um, or ultimately non-disturbance years, then we will germinate fewer weed seeds and, and, and reduce that weed seed bank. So uh, it's, it's largely around weed control and a reduction of cultivation. And there are presumably other benefits in terms of grazing and general wildlife. For instance, we have flowers, don't we, on the mulch crop? Definitely. There are, there are numerous benefits to this if, it, if it's possible to make it work. Those that you mentioned clearly, we like to keep obviously living plants going as much in the year as we can and to have living clover present um, is, is a good thing for biodiversity to have flowering clover present for a much longer period um, right through the summer, ungrazed, uncut flowering clover in the bottom of the crop is clearly um, a big benefit to, to biodiversity and pollinators as well. That continued root life throughout the period when our stubbles are essentially dead is, is clearly a positive thing. And, and again, coming back to the legumes, we're in a system which has to build nitrogen by use of legumes. That's the way we work uh, with no artificial nitrogen. And uh, so the greater the presence of legumes within our rotation, the better. It sounds very neat to say we're simultaneously building nitrogen and using nitrogen. It's not quite a, a simple exchange between two plants at the same time, but clearly there's a, a medium-term benefit to legumes being present. Is there not a competition between the mulch crop, the cover crop, and the cash crop for things like nutrients and moisture? Definitely. This is an innovative farmer's trial that's been running. It's in, entering its third year now that uh, has been fascinating. and We've learned a great deal. What we've learned, the two major disadvantages that we've clearly learned are that a companion crop is also a competitor. Um, and that is the fact, I think. Um, that's certainly how it performs. And we do have a yield penalty. Um, the two harvests that we've completed have shown a similar yield penalty between the crop direct drilled into mulch and the crop drilled into a control adjacent in the same field, um, either a ploughed or cultivated control. So there, there is clearly a yield penalty and the only explanation for that can be down to, well, partly down to direct drilling and partly down to the uh, competition that the clover is, is providing. 
the other disadvantage which I, I, I you know I'm open about is is the this system does encourage a build up of perennial weeds. It certainly helps us with control of annual weeds and we see, we see far fewer annual weeds, which is logical, but we see docks particularly in our case and slightly less so thistles will increase during this process. And again, in an organic system, that's that's obviously a big issue. We can't allow those perennial weeds to become too dominant. Mm. Let's talk about this yield gap, because clearly mm-hmm. you've got some advantages in terms of your cultivation costs are reduced, but you're going to get a lower yield. I guess yeah. in the $64,000 question, in pure financial terms, is it viable? Our yield penalty so far has been in the order of 30 to 35%. Our, our cost savings, uh, largely from the ploughing and the combination drilling that we would have had, also some degree of additional grazing, would be the equivalent of around 20%. So there is clearly a, a differential between those two, and we need to work out ways of doing this and close up that gap. Um, there can be a yield reduction because there are other benefits there, but it's too great at the moment. So, so. Uh, we, we go again this year, this autumn, we're starting again with, a, uh, with one or two new ideas um, to try and uh, work away at that difference, yeah. Mark, this has been fascinating to hear all about the, the Living Mulch trial. Uh, Mark Lee from Greenacres Farm and Innovative Farmers, thanks very much for joining us on the programme this morning. Thank you. Thanks, Steve. If you want to know more, just head to the Innovative Farmers website or have a look at the video on YouTube. Search Trialing Living Mulch. Time for our weekly crop report and some timely agronomy advice from crop doctor Sean Sparling. Now, because of the technicals around putting the programme together, we weren't able to give you the chance last week to react to the loss of our wonderful Queen. And I know you'll have been as saddened as I was, as we all were. Morning, Sean. Yes, good morning to you, Steve. Incredibly saddened by the loss of that awesome lady. I don't mind admitting I shed a little tear or two. A truly wonderful, steadying and constant presence in all of our lives and a real friend of farming and the countryside, of course. Never happier, apparently, than when she was surrounded by family, her animals, her dogs, her horses out there in the countryside. And I think just like losing a member of your own family, the loss is made greater by our connection to her. It's a very sad time for her family, but also for the rest of us because she was that matriarch that that many of us have always had there to steady the ship and she was the voice of reason on so many occasions so may she rest in eternal peace and god save the king i think is the right thing to say of course we as an industry do of course have that continuance of a king who views this industry and our countryside just as being equally as important as his mother so i'm sure we all remain in very very good hands so yeah very saddened and that feeling of loss is hard to shake off it just shows how much we were touched by her though as my dad used to say with anything to do with grief there's the beginning the middle and the rest of your life so i wish her family all the very best in dealing with what is tough enough on its own but to have to grieve in full public view must be just another level of grief so bless her and bless all of them too right agronomy then shorter than sweeter than normal last week's program didn't air for obvious reasons so rather than go over the cabbage stem flea beetle resistance mechanisms like i did last week just have a listen back to that podcast although all seed rape damage has gone up a level this week with some fields and more than expected and some areas 
areas more than expected being re-drilled through last week as the conditions allowed us to do so. Now it is getting plenty late enough on the 18th of September to think about re-drilling anything other than a hybrid variety of course, although acacia, the variety acacia does claim to be okay drilled into the middle of September but as a rule of thumb, once those autumnal conditions are shorter days, cooler days, cooler nights, cooling soils, once that becomes the norm you really do need that bit of hybrid vigour to get this seed drilled this late to get a move on and in and up and out so keep those seed rates up as well and I think this really is these next couple of days the last chance saloon for putting old seed rape in the ground as I said that cabbage stem flea beetle damage has increased pyrethroids though are pyrethroids if they're shrugging off one pyrethroids they'll shrug off them all and I've spoken to several entomologists who say that KDR resistance is common to all of the pyrethroids so mixing them alternating them matching it's unlikely to make any difference so it's back to basics pray for the IPM to help you out and lots of leaf damage isn't necessarily lots of larval damage of course it used to be that on a plant less than four leaves if you got more than 25 percent leaf damage that was the economic trigger for spraying so just because you lose leaf area it's not always economically justifiable to spray many insecticides to try and control because the larval numbers are unlikely to be significant but who knows this pest will have changed just like every other pest will just like blackgrass has changed its habits cabbage stem flea beetle has changed too so if you planted all seed rate you knew the risks you know the limitations that we have of the products available so just keep praying and keep those fingers crossed disease levels do remain low in the all seed rape though but just as in all seed rape as it will be for cereals slugs do remain a problem so don't forget about them winter barley drilling starting on some farms imminent on many others and we do of course have a clonifen cleared for use this autumn in winter barley giving us an extra tool for potential blackgrass control the maximum dose by the way one litre per hectare in winter barley it's up to 1.4 litres of course on winter wheat but do make sure you drill these crops deep enough whether it be wheat or barley drill them deep enough for the the pre-ems to make them safe it's selectivity by depth protection so it's the same really as flufenicet at least 30 millimetres preferably 40 millimetres of settled soil over the top of the seed after you've rolled and don't roll after application do it before application only and if you do use a clonifen don't use a fine mesh in your sprayer you'll find they bung up losses are much higher of course in winter barley than they are in winter wheat so work out your seed rates accordingly so you're not disappointed in the spring and of course winter barley very good line in for all seed rape next year if we decide to grow it after the cabbage stem flea beetle issues this year but as far as black grass control goes it tends to hide it for that bit longer than wheat rather than control it so as we're only just starting to see black grass appearing in the stale seed beds and i mean only just do plan your fields out sensibly i know it's grandmother sucking egg stuff but black grass is just as devastating to a winter barley crop as it is to a wheat crop if you get it wrong and herbicides need all the cultural controls they can get so do try and help them out the same with the new ones, synmethylin or luximo, luxinum plus for use in wheat it's not magic chemistry stale seed beds delayed drilling still does far more good than the herbicide will in fact in some of our AICC trials the blackgrass heads per square meter were actually lower in the untreated plots that were drilled on the 20th of October than they were in the multiply treated plots that were drilled at the end of September and early October so when your advisor tries to hold you back from drilling your black grassland, and I know it might come wet, so you have to get on, you don't want to get left behind, you don't want to miss out, we all know that argument. 
Remember that all we're trying to do, we're not trying to hinder you or be contrary, we're just trying to optimise your blackgrass control. So the wheat going in as well now, although on the lighter non-blackgrass land only, going in very nicely too actually on the heath. Um, so it's all starting again, isn't it? And it won't be long before those blackgrass fields are in the sights, despite what I say and everybody else says. So bring it on then, you know, we can only do our best with what we're given. We can only play the hand that we're dealt. So farming really is a metaphor for life isn't it right hopefully no black grassy land will have been drilled by the time i speak to you next week so let's see what the next seven days bring thanks as ever sean the farming program with araquit steel stockholders withambrook industrial estate Gransom. for all your steel needs call their friendly experts a kit has been developed to enable conversion of Land Rovers to electric power. This is from Oxfordshire firm Electrogenic. Their CEO, Steve Drummond, joins us this morning. Steve, firstly, are we talking about the new Land Rover or the Heritage Defender? We're talking about the Heritage ones. Um, the, the ones we developed the kit for are the Defender, um, or 90 and 110 up to you know 2015. OK, and what are the advantages of converting? Primarily economic. Um, of course, it, it con- contributes to uh, overall sustainable policy goals um, if that's what you're doing on, on your farm or on, on your land. But um, the, the main thing is simply economic. The idea behind this kit is that it's built down to a price. The price is going to be around £25,000 um, plus VAT for the kit. Uh, the idea is you can have it installed locally by your local garage, installed and maintained. We've had those uh, kits driving around on the farm for 18 months or so now, and the estimate is that it's it's about a four-year payback in terms of investment return solely on savings of diesel. You actually use much less energy because you're you're not having the vehicle running on idle for long periods of time. You know, when you stop, the electricity stops. Okay. <laughs> Whereas, you know, very typically with a Land Rover, you know, you, you go to a field, the engine's running on idle for maybe an hour to keep the heater warm, all that sort of thing. So you don't have any of that with the electric version. Okay. And what, again, one of the big advantages that many farmers see from the, the Land Rover is the power takeoff. Will that still be okay with an electric motor? That's an interesting one. We haven't done with one with a PTO. Uh, the Land Rovers we have converted do tow. I mean, they've been towing three and a half digger, three and a half ton diggers around. You know, big trailers full of uh, straw bales, um, yeah, that sort of thing. Um, but we've not done one with the PTO. And the biggest question mark with many people, whether it's a car or whether it's a commercial vehicle, is range. And with the Land Rover on farm, of course, it's not necessarily just miles, but hours. Yeah. So this is why we've had them down on the farm for 18 months, is to test them out. What you get is you get a, a motor, which is about exactly the same power and torque as uh, a 300 TDI, that sort of engine, so the earlier um, Defenders, uh, 90s and 110s, which is plenty for most farms, and it keeps going all day. I mean, obviously, range is reduced for towing, but, but the idea is it. It runs around the farm all day, every day. Um, you plug it in at night, next day it's ready to go again. That, that's the basic use case. If you want to go on big motorway trips, this is not the conversion for you. You need to spend a bit more money. But if this is a tool, a working tool to, to get the job done um, locally on the farm, down to the local village, town, whatever, then then it's uh, it's it's a good economic proposition. Okay. And what about ongoing maintenance? So it's nothing for the unit itself. Um, you still got, of course, your suspension. Um, brakes, wipers, all that stuff. But uh, 
um, the unit itself is, is designed to be maintenance free. And what kind of lifespan? It's an interesting one. Uh, the motor sh- should be good for 50 years. Um, batteries should be good for 200,000 miles or so. Where can yeah. we find out more information about this, Steve? Um, just go to our website, um, electrogenic.co.uk. And this is going to be available when? We've built a number of versions of this, and we're trying to refine it so it's really easy to fit. So we'll have them commercially available October, November. Lovely. Chief Exec of Electrogenic, Steve Drummond. Thank you. Thank you very much. Let's get our weekly market reports now. Firstly, from Louth Livestock Market auctioneer Oliver Chapman. Morning, Oliver. Good morning, Steve. Another weekly roundup from here at Laos, starting with the prime cattle, which she steers, averaged 242.17 pence per kilo, and heifers averaged 226.9 pence per kilo. Steers top at 260 pence per kilo, and gross £1,571 for JC Scolia Bormba, while the heifers top at 251 pence per kilo, and gross £1,352 for D Lionel & Co of Owenby. Moving on to the lambs, a slightly smaller show, as to be expected after many are shut down by the six-day standstill after Friday's breeding sheep sale. An SQQ of 233.75 pence per kilo with an all-in average of 231.64 pence per kilo. Top goes to P&S Marsden and Son of Cold Hamworth at 254 pence per kilo or £130 per head for some heavier weighted lambs. Moving on to the cool use, double the number and double the trade, you could almost say, with an all-in average of £130.31, which puts Louth at the top of the tree this week in the averaging prices. Top came for Field Farming Company and Scrivelsby Farms Limited, with ewes selling away to £179, with plenty more best-ended continental ewes selling between £150 and £170 mark. Finally, store lambs, and after Friday's roaring trade across the board, a few more turn out with 50 on offer to leave an all-in average of £67.39, which would be a very strong average for the goods on offer. The best-ended Suffolk bred lambs from R. Og of Scunthorpe Colby topped at £91 per head. Huge thank you to everyone that's been and supported this week, both buyers and vendors. Please note, tomorrow, Monday the 19th of September, as a mark of respect, to the late Queen Elizabeth II, there will be no livestock market. Our market sale will resume on Monday the 26th of September with the postponed pedigree limbs and herd dispersal, store cattle and prime and cool cattle and sheep. So for all entries, please do not hesitate to contact me. It's Oliver Chapman for Masons and Louth Market and thank you. Thanks Oliver. And the Grey Markets review now with Openfield's Kit Dickinson. Good morning Kit. Well good morning Steve. Another USDA report is safely behind us, with the biggest surprise being the reduction in the US soybean yield. They also reduced the US maize yield in line with the market expectations, but partly offset the lower crop with reductions in ethanol, feed usage and exports. A 1 million acre reduction in the US maize acreage was also reported. Further cuts to the yield in future reports are expected, making their ending stocks historically tight. The EU maize crop was reduced by 1.2 million metric tonne, which is still 5 to 8 million metric tonnes too high, and left imports unchanged at 19 million metric tonnes. The EU balance sheet on milling wheat and feed grain is tight and the market's job is to slow wheat exports which are running at 15% above last year. They left Indian production unchanged with exports of 6.5 million metric tonnes despite their export ban on wheat and last week's 20% duty on rice exports. Flooding in Pakistan will also necessitate significant imports which are not yet factored in. They increased Russian and Ukrainian wheat production by 4 million metric tonnes combined but left their exports unchanged which, logical as their current rhythm falls, well short of what is required. 
We've just loaded our first 5,500 tonne malting barley boat for the year at Sharpness. With the UK exportable surplus of 750,000 metric tonne, we have a long way to go to get rid of our surplus in the UK. Malting barley values are unchanged irrespective of movements in wheat futures. Brewers and malsters are reluctant to buy any more barley until the January to June positions. The malting barley premium of circa £30 per tonne post-Christmas still represents very good physical values. Apart from the crazy early war period, these are historically high prices. Looking at all seed rate this week, the monthly USDA supply and demand report lowered domestic crop estimates from soybeans as the hot and dry weather during August cut into the harvest potential. The report lowered soybean yield, harvest acres, production and carryout. The revised US production estimate is now 4,378 million bushels, which is 118 million bushels below the average trade guess at 153, below the August estimate. Now the US is no longer going to produce record crop, the future and focus is on the South American production and Chinese demand. The USDA report caused soybeans in Chicago to soar, trading near the strongest since the end of June, and rivaled oils tracked gains. However, the following surge on Monday, soybean futures have fallen on technical selling and profit-taking. There are also concerns about the export demand for US supplies, with pressure coming from the strong competitive global market, particularly in Argentina. So moving on to prices this week, feed wheat for September to October is 255 to 265, November 260 to 266, February 263 to 269 and May 268 to 273. Milling wheat premiums are currently 40 to 45 pounds. Looking at feed barley at 240 to 248 for the November and February positions, moving ever so slightly higher to 242 250 for May 23. Malting barley premiums, as I said earlier, are circa £30. Thanks as ever, Kit. The Farming Programme. Five-day forecast. High pressure brings a mostly dry, quite calm week in Lincolnshire. A little rain, but not much for Sunday and Monday. Light winds from the northwest, cooling things down a little. Highs of 15 Celsius to start the week. Calm and a couple of degrees warmer under patchy skies midweek. The wind switching round to the southeast to end the week, staying light and dry with highs around 20. Well, that's it for another week. I'm Steve Orchard. Until next week's farming programme, have a great week. The farming programme with Araquip Steel Stockholders with Embrook Industrial Estate Grantham. BSI ISO 9001 accredited.